Hello, my friends. My name is Chris K, and I'm the host of Burner Phone Podcast, an educational series about the world of crime from the people that lived it. In this episode, I'll be talking to... I'm Rick Ross, and I'm a former drug dealer. Yeah, man. Thanks for uh, talking with me today, man. No problem. This morning. I'm just waking up. So can you tell me about <laughs> growing up in uh, South Central? Well, I, I felt it was like any other place growing up. Um, when we moved to South Central, uh, most of the white people were moving out. It was about three or four white people was uh, the beginning of the blacks taking over that area. Um well, maybe not the beginning, but the middle. Um, nice area. Um, gangs were just starting to, to form. Um, the Watts riot had just ended. Um, and I loved it. You know, I loved being in that area. I loved the environment. I loved the people there. And, you know, I just fell in love with the with the area. Like growing up, growing up there, like uh, what you do as a kid? How'd you uh, How'd you fit in, man? Well, we did all the things that any other, you know, that any other kids were doing. Played marbles, rode bikes. Um, we had dirt bikes where we would make ramps and jump and uh, skateboard and uh, play basketball, football. Um, uh, just a number of things, you know, uh, things that we thought would eventually uh, get us out of that area, uh, even though we loved the area. Um you know, we still wanted nice things. Yeah. So uh, what were your friends like, the people around you? What, what were they like growing up as a kid? Well, I've, I've always been kind of like the leader of my of my little group, and most of them was, was, was similar to me. You know, they kind of molded themselves after me a little bit, uh, not totally, but, but somewhat. I was uh, probably the second or the third oldest, you know, out of our little group. It was about... 15, maybe 20 of us that, that hung out. Some people might have even considered us a gang, but, you know, we didn't fight. And, uh, we didn't uh, uh, steal and, and stuff like that until later on and, and, and until we got older. You know, we rode our bikes together. We skated together. You know, we rolled derby together. We'd go to the movies together. I mean, we were just kind of like a, a bunch of young guys who um, – genuinely uh, loved each other and cared about each other, and, and we hung out together. Where do you think, like, you got those leadership qualities from, where where people kind of follow you? Like, who who was a big influence in that realm? Wow. I don't know where it came from, you know. I can remember even when I was, you know, three or four years old, my mom used to say, uh, she used to say, you know, like, when, whenever me and my uh, brothers got in trouble, she would always say, uh, you the head leader. You know, <laughs> if I did something, I'd get a whooping for it. Yeah, that's interesting, man. Yeah, I, I yeah, always kind of wonder like where that where that comes from in someone. You know, where someone will walk into a room and everyone will look at them and listen and pay attention versus another person. You know, what it, what about that person? You know. Yeah, it is. That is something I never really thought about. That where those qualities come from. Um, I know that they can be developed. Uh, um, 
and I guess, you know, it, it probably comes from me uh, wanting more for myself and expecting more out of myself and then other people kind of gravitating to that, you know, because uh, uh, so many people, you know, or especially black black males are so beat down, you know, in, in, in society right now that, that they don't even try, you know, they don't even think that they have a, a shot at, at, at making it. And, and my mentality was that I always had a shot and I always could make it. Yeah. Growing up, like, who were your heroes? Who were the people that you looked up to? Well, you know, like any other kid, it started with uh, people on TV, you know, uh, who I wanted to be like. And, and uh, as I got older, you know, I started picking, you know, people who looked more like myself and who were more in uh, a circumstance that, that I saw myself in. It, it's funny how, you know, when you're coming up as a kid, you know, you might like a guy like John Wayne, you know, who was a cowboy, and you want to be a cowboy, you know. But then eventually, as I got older and, and, and started to uh, um, embrace who I was and, and, and what my opportunities were, uh, my, my heroes started to change. You know, and it started to be guys like Tookie Williams and uh, other guys in my neighborhood who who basically uh, hung out with them. And it went from that to uh, to tennis, you know, where, uh, well, no, it went from that to motorcycles. You know, I, I started, um, got me a motorcycle one year for Christmas, and, you know, I wanted to be a dirt bike rider. And, you know, and it, it just constantly changed as my awareness became uh, uh, um more focus, you know, and, and, and finding out who I was. Then it went from that to a couple of my friends who, who played tennis, you know. Uh, I started to want to be like them. And, and then it went from them to Arthur Ashe and then from Arthur Ashe to um, Priest and Superfly. So, you know, it just it just kind of changed. But, you know, a young mind is, is really impressionable. You know, it, 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 it can be molded in many different ways fashion right so you, you mentioned Tukey Williams like what can you describe the the early formations of the different gangs in your area what were they who who were they surrounding you well when the first time that, that well I guess you know the first ones was probably the Black Panthers I can remember when the Black Panthers were going through uh their little civil war with the, with the cops of Los Angeles. I can remember the army tanks. Uh, I can remember the buildings burning, the Watts riot. Uh, I was there for that. Uh, then it went from them to uh, the us, which my brother was a us, and they were kind of like an, an offshoot of the uh, of the Black Panthers. Uh, then when the cops eventually, kind of like I guess what you would say, got rid of them, uh, it went from there to the to the Crips, uh, and the Crips was basically the first gang that that I remember. Uh, later on, I, I learned about the Bloods, so that was pretty much my uh, extent with the gangs. Uh, I can remember uh, the Crips having their meetings at the park. I can remember uh, the Crips uh, uh, playing football against the Bloods uh, later on in life. In in how I wish that I was old enough to uh, participate. You know, you were you were growing up. You excelled in tennis. Uh, it seems like that was your future. How did you 
first get involved in any sort of crime? What was the what was the first introduction into that world? Well, you know, um, not only tennis, but I, I was good in just about all sports: football, okay. basketball, baseball. Not great in 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 any of them. Uh, uh, not having anybody to really focus me and 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 horn my skills. Uh, I wind up drifting from from one sport to the other, not really knowing which one uh, was going to be my calling. Um, when it was time to go to high school, I was I was a small guy, and none of the uh, high school's coaches, because uh, I really wanted to play football, either basketball or in high school, uh, but none of the coaches paid me any attention. So it wound up being tennis that I played all during high school. I started to excel in tennis um, because I started to focus more. I stopped playing football and stopped playing basketball and, and really just focus my attention on uh, on tennis. Uh, I excelled and made All-City, uh, L.A., I think second team my first year, and I made uh, first team my second, my second two years. But I never learned to read or write. So after uh, what should have been my senior year in, in high school, uh, I didn't consider that, that, that college was not going to be an option, so it was no chance of me going to college and, and continuing uh, a tennis career. Uh, so it was at that time that I turned back to South Central, which had um, it started to change a lot from uh, where it was when we first moved over there when you know, I, I was really young too when we first moved. I think I may have been about nine or ten years old when we first moved to South Central. Um, moved out of Watts, um, so it was at that time that I started off, and um, I started off just uh, driving cars for car thieves. They would go out and steal a car, and one day uh, they had stolen a car, and they asked me if I would drive the car for them uh, for fifty dollars. And, and I did it, and, and it probably was the easiest fifty dollars that I ever earned. Yeah, that's interesting, man. Can you tell me about the process of uh, jacking a car and bringing it back to the chop shop? How did that? How did that <laughs> whole economy work? <laughs> it was pretty simple. Um, when I first started off, like I said, I didn't know how to how to start a car. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to open the doors or anything. I, all I did was they did everything. The car was started. I would get in, put it in gear, and drive it off. Uh, then I would park it uh, um, at a specific location where I was instructed, and, and my job would be done. Uh, but as I started to be drawn more and more to the um, to the money, uh, I started to see that it was more money. And uh, first, taking the cars apart with them. And then later on, uh, I learned how to start the cars myself and how to open the doors. And eventually, uh, my little crew that I was telling you about earlier, uh, who I played football with and basketball and skateboarding, bikes and tennis, and, well, they started being my drivers. And then later on, they started being the guys that would help me uh, break the cars down. Okay. Yeah, that whole car world, man, the the carjacking world is interesting. It's it's crazy how it's progressed through the years, how, like, today uh, with the technology, what car thieves are doing to get into these brand-new cars, 
with these um, electronics. There's, you know, they're fine. It's a lot harder now. Oh yeah, but there's there's these little devices I've heard that you can buy on the internet and actually kind of like override whatever code and actually just get into it just by pressing a button. I mean, it's not like you got to use wow. a slim gem or nothing like that. <laughs> it's, it's, wow. Well, you know, yeah. anytime that anytime that uh, society comes up with something, uh, you know, somebody's gonna come up with a way to 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 uh, to beat it. That's very true. So, how were you first introduced to cocaine, man? And what were what years were these? Right when you were first introduced to that first gram. Well, uh, I was introduced to cocaine through the cars, through through, through car my, my activities in the cars. I'd I'd also started to low ride. I bought a low rider, and um, uh, I I wanted to fix this low rider up. I'd also uh, uh, known quite a few of the pimps, too, on Figueroa. And as you know, in the movie, Superfine was probably my first introduction to cocaine. Um, when I saw Priest and, 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 and those guys, you know, dealing cocaine. So that kind of left, left an impression on me, you know, that I'd never seen because I'd never seen a black guy like Priest before. You know, Priest uh, stood up to the man as he said in the movie, and um, he won, you know, and, and I'd always had a thing against cops. You know, cops had, had left a, an impression on me, you know, from my early childhood, you know, from the Black Panthers, you know. Uh, they had uh, broke my brother's nose when they had a march. My brother had went to a march with the us, and I think they had broke his nose or broke his jaw, one of them. I can't remember exactly which, uh, but my brother was kind of like my hero at that time, and and I was furious with uh, with the cops for for doing that. So I, I had a kind of a dislike for the cops from an early age. And then when I go and see this movie Superfly, you know, I see priests who who tricks the cops. The cops are trying to trick him, you know, and 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 make him their boy, and then he winds up tricking them and, and coming out on top. So I had never seen that happen with a black man before. So I kind of fell in love with the whole concept, you know, uh, priest and then cocaine is what I felt gave him that power. So I kind of fell in love with cocaine that day. I learned from being in prison, you know, and studying that the subconscious mind is something else. And if you feed the subconscious mind, uh, it'll harvest that thing that you fed it until it gets an opportunity to act on uh, what you gave it, if I'm making sense. <laughs> but anyway. It makes uh, complete sense, yeah. Anyway, I started low riding, and, and uh, I met a guy named uh, Michael McLaurin, who was uh, a painter. He painted cars. And uh, me and him kicked up a friendship that was... Um, just like brothers, you know, he became kind of like my big brother, uh, somebody that that I wanted to be like. You know, he 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 painted cars like crazy, and I felt that, you know, if I could paint cars, then that could be a way that I could start making a, a living for myself. Well, he eventually got a scholarship to go to to a college or university, and uh, he went and played football, and 
one day he came back on a, on on a break and and uh, he introduced me to cocaine that day. And my life okay. is forever changed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's put you on a new path, definitely. So no doubt, they're still yeah. going right now today. You know, my life is still affected by uh, the decisions that I made when I was nineteen that day. That because he put that cocaine on that table, still affects my life right now today. Yeah, literally uh, changed. You know the history. You helped change part of the history of America as well, you know, in so many yeah. different ways. Um, yeah, so what year was this? 79, maybe maybe beginning of 80. It was in the 79 or the beginning of 80. Okay. People didn't know anything about the drug, right? No, I didn't even know it. Um, matter of fact, the first um, cocaine that he gave me, Man, I don't know how many days. It took me a long time just to find somebody that uh, that knew what it was. So you had a hard time even selling it. I did, yeah. I didn't sell the first piece that I that I had. Yeah, I really gave it away. So can you tell me about selling that first gram? How did it all go down? So eventually, I ran into uh, one of the homies named Martin, who who was a pimp, and I asked him, uh, "What was it?" And uh, he took it. He took me to his house and. He pulls out this black bag and it has all these things in it because I never saw all the tools at, at that time uh, for, for for cooking up cocaine and smoking cocaine. And pull out a pipe and a shaker bottle and a, a, a clothes hanger with a cotton swab on it. And, you know, and he's going through this ritual where he's cooking it up and he puts baking soda in it and fizzles and bubbles. And I'm like, wow, I ain't gonna never learn how to do all this <laughs> because you know at this time. Uh, I hadn't did well in school at all, and especially in in uh, 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 science and in in uh, you know stuff where you're working with chemicals and 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 drugs and whatnot. I I really did lousy. So um, he's sitting there doing all that, and I'm like, wow, I ain't gonna never learn how to do all this stuff here. I don't know where I'm gonna go in this in this cocaine business. How far I'm gonna get in it? I don't think I'm gonna get very far. Um, but I had made my mind up that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, so he eventually finished cooking it and he took a piece out and he hit it and he said, it tastes okay. And he took another little piece out and, and pretty soon the whole thing was, was just about gone. And then he told me, he said, man, I'll just pay you for this Friday. I guess you could say that was my first sale. Uh, I don't know if he ever paid me for it, but he came back that same day and ordered another piece. And that started my business. It just went from there, from from him to my house. And next thing you know, I got three or four pimps coming by the house. And next thing, the prostitutes was coming by. And, and next thing you know, doctors and lawyers and entertainers. And um, you know, it got so bad that my mom said that because uh, I really was was dealing out of my mom's garage. Uh, my mom told me that that I could no longer live there. So it kind of paralleled what you did with the car thing. Like, I guess, like, you started out as a student, you kind of learned, progressed, and then you had everybody working for you. Yeah, yeah, and it started off, my first workers were was that same little group that, that I told you about because uh, they were the first ones to know that I had money. You know, I was I was what they call ghetto rich before anybody in my neighborhood even knew. You know, my mom thought that, that I was on drugs. She thought that I was using drugs because what I did is, <laughs> it's funny, you know, I told you about the car that I was building. 
Well, once I started selling drugs, I realized that that car had been kind of holding me down because I made good money when I was stealing cars. I made really good money for, you know, for an 18, 19-year-old kid. You know, I was making some days 14, I mean, uh, four or $500 a day, you know, stealing cars. But I was always broke. And so the lesson that I learned was that I had been taking all my money, putting it into this car instead of taking my money and learning how to make my money work for me. Uh, so the first thing I did when I started selling drugs is I started to, I realized that the more drugs I had, the more money I could make. So I started selling the pieces off my car. And for my mom to see me selling the pieces off of this car that she knew that I loved dearly, uh, she thought something was really, really wrong with me. Uh, but what it was is that I was taking the money now, investing the money in the drugs so that I could get more drugs to make more money. Yeah. So you were building up your re-up money any way you could. You were just kind of like pulling it all together. Yep. yep. And I, I wasn't spending any of my money. Uh, I really, really saved. Uh, I think the first time my mom found my stash of money, I had like a hundred grand. Um saved up already and uh, she went in my room and I was just kind of like I wasn't counting my money you know I was kind of like just re-upping you know a, a certain level to to where I had enough for that day and then the rest of the money the excess money I would just throw in my closet and shoe boxes and, and then cover it up in dirty clothes and uh, one day my mom I guess, she, I guess she figured that I'd been coming in the house too many times you know because I was standing out on the street selling I was in a in a house selling. I was on the street, and and I didn't want to be on the street with with too much money. So every time I would get like two thousand dollars, I would come to the house and put it up. And you know, I guess I was making too many trips to the house, and uh, she followed. First, she she must have just watched me, you know, to see where I was going and, and what I was doing, and me not knowing. Uh, so the next time that I came in, she had all my money laying out on the on the bed. At that point. When you have a hundred thousand in cash, um, you know what was the next step in terms of leveling up in the drug game? Like, where did how did you make that 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 next that next jump? Well, I'd already decided that 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 you know <laughs> it's crazy. When I first started in the drug business, I only wanted to make five thousand dollars. That was to finish up that car I was telling you about, and uh. Um, and do a few other little things for myself. But um, it went from 5 to 20, from 20 to 100. Once I had 100,000, uh, I wanted to be a millionaire. You know, I learned what 100,000 was, and uh, I loved it, and, and, and I wanted to take that and, and 10-time it. So I started working to be a millionaire. And what I did is I found out that there was power in, in my money and that if I took my 100,000, to the people that I was buying my drugs from, say for instance, at that time I was I was just buying pounds. I wasn't even buying kilos at the time, and they were charging me like thirty five thousand for a pound, which would have been about eighty thousand for a kilo. But I found out when I take all my money to them that I could get the pounds for a little cheaper. Instead of thirty eight thousand, I could get them for thirty five thousand. I could get them for thirty two thousand. So what that would do is that would break down uh, each ounce, maybe $200, and then I could take that ounce and sell it to my customers 
and and make five hundred dollars profit off of each one. And then I started using the power of my money. Um, as my money grew, uh, I wanted more and more discount uh, because you know I had the money, and they wanted the money and needed the money. Right. As you as you kind of moved up and you moved from street dealer to to a distributor, um, and I guess you probably went through a lot of different plugs and were kind of like shopping around looking for the best price. When yes, did I would that, always be I was I would always be looking for the best price and uh, I also bought connections. You know, I would pay uh, one time I paid sixty sixty thousand dollars to to meet a connect. I bought a house to meet connects before. Uh, so, so it was like, it's always investing, you know, it's, it's like, uh, uh, I mean, we were doing what, what big corporations do, what they call, uh, uh, research and development. You know, you have to pay that money to, to, to get to the next level. What was the first moment where you, where you met the connect with the purest shit, the cheapest prices? At what point was that? Well, I guess uh, uh, when I met Danilo Blando, probably was the cheapest and the best. Uh, I think the f- first time I bought from him, I may have paid. Hmm. No, maybe like twenty-eight thousand for a key. Okay. And then I met another guy. I bought another connection for thirty-five thousand, and he was. A little higher, but you know, I got slick to where, where I was to the point where I would pay even more to one guy just so I wouldn't buy from the other guy. You understand? Like, yeah. you would tell him that he sold it to you cheaper, uh, but he really sold it to you more. But you would just go to him just so the other guy would have to, uh, you know, have to have to wait, you know, and, and not and not be able to sell his his merchandise. Um, and it, and it worked great. Uh, um, that's how I was able to take the price down. Like I said, when when I was buying pounds for, for like thirty five thousand, and that would that would probably equate about anywhere from seventy something thousand to eighty thousand a kilo. And the last kilos I bought, I, I got them for like nine five. Oh wow! So that was the cheapest that you were able to get them. Yeah, that's the cheapest I ever got it for. And so once you once you met this guy. Um, you know, I, I guess your 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 cocaine empire must have been, I mean, pretty big at that point. What can you describe like the infrastructure of your entire empire at that time when you were when you were you know getting multiple keys at a time? Basically, what I did is 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 I knew so many people in LA, you know, from 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 the lowriders, you know, uh, they used to have what we call the car hops where all the young people used to come out to to uh to certain locations and and we would just hang out and and talk smack and 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 jump our cars and see who paint job was the prettiest almost like a car show and and this happened just about every weekend you know Friday Saturday and Sunday you know we'd be somewhere where we would go and hang out you know uh messing with girls and, and just hanging out so i i had started to meet so many people doing that so when I started selling drugs, uh, I already knew so many people, but I didn't really understand 
how to do it. And it, it accidentally happened one night. I was at the skating ring, and one of the guys who who I knew, and he he was a shot caller from from uh, from a gang, from the Great Street Crips, and I thought that he was going to whoop me the first night that 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 we ran back into each other because uh, I had pulled a gun on him a couple weeks before. Um, they were talking about taking one of my guys' cars, and and I ran and got a gun, and you know, to protect him. Uh, so when I saw him at the skating ring, I was I was really terrified. Uh, he was with four guys, and I was by myself. I was going there to pick up a young lady from the skating ring for that night. It was amazing that um, when we ran into each other, he had heard that I was doing really well, and he was like, "Man, I hear you doing real good for yourself." And I was like, yeah, and then he started smiling, so I knew that um, I wasn't going to get beat up that night. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I told him, yeah, I was, and that if he would come by the house the next day, uh, that I had some hookup for him. So he came by, and, and uh, what I did is I gave him, like, four ounces of Coke. Some to me at that time was probably worth about maybe $6,000. Uh, well, anyway, he came back with like $40,000. I was like, wow, what if I do this with all the guys from every set that I know? How much would they come back with? Because to them, the cocaine was more valuable than it was to me. You know, to me, the value of cocaine had went down because I had pretty much been supplying all the guys in my circle. Uh-huh. But these were people that was outside my circle. That wasn't my immediate, pretty much my immediate family, I guess you would say. What does it look like in terms of, I mean, how many crack houses were you running? How how were you distributing all that weight onto the street? At any given time, you know, I could have five or ten uh, rock houses that was going at the same time. Um also, we had what we call an escalating plan where if somebody came to a – because it, what was happening is that my rock house is, was giving rock so big that people could take a rock from my house and then they could take it to a, um, to a, a city right outside, say, like Long Beach, and they could do what they call double up or triple up. So you could come to my spot and spend $100, and you could take it to Long Beach and turn it into $300. So what we did is we also started what we call an escalating system where if you came to the rock house and you spent $100, but there would be guys who would come to the rock house and might spend $800, you know, and buy eight rocks at one time. Well, we wanted to get those guys where they didn't go to those houses, and we would have another central house that was less traffic, and they would get more attention than the normal uh, uh, person that's only spending $100. And and eventually, if they kept doing that, then they would get to a point where they could meet me. Yeah, so you were, you were kind of like giving users the opportunity to, to make some serious money just because of the quantity that they were able to get. Right. <clears throat> Could you talk about running a running a trap house, man? Like, um, how, what was the what you do for like security? What were the houses inside like? How, how did you how did you operate these houses safely? Uh, and so many at the same time. It was pretty easy. I mean, you would put bars on the 
on the on the windows. Um, and what we what we had, what we had started to do was put bars on the inside as well, because uh, it not only made it secure from from robbers, but it also made it secure from the police as well. Uh, where it would take the police a while to get inside. Um, we would have bar doors. Uh, sometimes we would have cages on the inside of the house where you would come inside of the house uh, through the front door, and then when you walk in, there's a, a bar, a cage, a bar cage that's made up that you couldn't see from the outside, and then you would get served through that through that cage. Uh, if it was somebody who who really got to know you, and and we knew work was good, then they wouldn't have to get served in the cage; they could come all the way in the house. At your height, uh, how, many, how many houses do you think you were running? Uh, maybe fifteen or twenty. Uh, you know, I also what, what I what I did is, is I, I started buying houses as well. You know, fixer uppers and foreclosures and things like that because I wanted to get into real estate. So what, what we would do is we would buy the houses and then we would uh, turn them into uh, in our traps because they would pay for themselves. So during this time, as you were <clears throat> as you were moving weight and you were kind of rolling with the money, what was the lifestyle like in terms of? I mean, how were you living? Well, my lifestyle didn't change much. It, it did a little bit, you know. It's funny. I, I, I talked to a friend that, that I hadn't spoke to in a long time, and they were telling me about how before I started selling uh, coke, you know, I was a really really simple person. I had three or four pair of pants. And uh, and I, I didn't really notice, but uh, they told me that, that the next time they see me, a few years later, that I had started wearing designer jeans and uh, I would have on new tennis shoes. Uh, so so I changed a little bit, but, but not too drastically, uh, uh, I don't believe. Uh, I tried to stay low-key. And, and, you know, it's hard when, you know, you talk about somebody that's making uh, – Two or three hundred thousand dollars a day profit, probably taking in thirty thousand dollars just in one dollar bills every day. And the one dollar bills, you can't even spend them, you know, because the drug connection, they won't take them. Uh, you can't put them in the bank. You can't spend them at the gas station. It's too, just too many. Uh, it's, it's probably hard to not uh, uh, start to splurge in some of the things, uh, the finer things of life. So you, it sounds like for the most part, though, you were. You're, you've always been kind of a humble dude, and um, it sounds like you know you really understood the important, importance of being low key. But as this was going on, I mean, it, people had to have been whispering and talking, moving hundreds of keys. I mean, I'm oh, no sure e- everybody no thought you were the man at that point. You know, well, everybody knew it was me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you figure when when you're in South Central and, and 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 you're employing or helping that many guys get money, you know, say and 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 I figured out in jail really what what happened to 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 my to my to my low key system is that you know you got a guy who um, who basically is the man and he has five maybe ten guys just working for him. If he goes back to he comes and sees me. And then he goes back to his spot, and he's talking to his guys, and he may tell them something about me. And by him saying it, it's like getting an endorsement from 
almost like Floyd Mayweather. You know, Floyd Mayweather says something, and all of his fans, they listen and, and, and they take it. And what happened is then his five guys who are major, really, you know, they major too because they probably driving brand-new cars and got a house and jewelry and, and you know, and all the stuff that everybody else wants. And then his guys go out and say something, and it just – Echoes the, the 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 message, you know, and the next thing you know, this this message is is all the way down in Miami, mm-hmm. in New York. So yeah, so you were you were no longer anonymous at that point, for the most part. Well, I was anonymous to myself. <laughs> but the rest of the, but the rest of the hoods all had had, had heard the, the the story, you know, of this. This young man who's making, and, and you know, they I was making hundreds of thousands a day, but they might turn into ten million a day, you know, or twenty million a day. You know, you never know how the stories, you know, get translated. Right. Yeah, it was like a you, you were like a legend that was growing and growing. Was the law on to you at that point? I mean, were they were they actively looking for you? Were they actively going after you? Did they have well, what eventually happened is, is that they say that, that City Hall and, I guess, Congress people, that mayors or whoever, uh, the powers that be, had been hearing this story for so long that they called the police captains together and said that we want to find out who this who this guy, who is this Freeway Rick that everybody's talking about, and uh, we want him brought down. So they created like a task force. They created they created the Freeway Rick Task Force. Okay. And uh, at that point, when the police were after you, when they when they really kind of put a lot of efforts into into taking you down, um, how much money were you making at that time, and and how much cocaine do you think you were buying? on a regular basis, weekly? Uh, well, when they started the Freeway Task Force, that was during the height of my career. Um, they they disrupted my, my organization a lot. I mean, uh, they started kicking in doors. Um, and, and you know those cops were corrupt, too. You know, they, they were searching right. houses without search warrants, uh, planting drugs. Uh, so they really, really started to disrupt uh, what I had, what I had set up. Um, before they started, though, I was making like a million, anywhere from a million two to three million dollars every day. You know, it would it would change from day to day according to who came uh, and who didn't come. Uh, so I, I was doing really, really well, and uh, at that time. I would be making anywhere from mm, two hundred thousand uh, to three hundred thousand off of every million dollars that I that I took in. So they were they were doing everything in their power, any sort of trick they could they could use to try to lock you up and your network. So what what type of to kind of like combat that? What what kind of security measures did you guys? Uh, use. I mean, it had to have been a huge effect on on your business. Well, you know, we never we never kept much drugs in the house. Uh, 
uh, even when I first started, uh, we wouldn't keep much drugs in the house. Uh, we had tactics where we would stash our drugs in, 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 in certain ways that, uh, um, that we knew the drugs couldn't be tied to any of us. Uh, I was always under the impression that, uh, even if I lost all my drugs, I could always start back over. Uh, because I started with $125. So I'd always figured that if they took all my drugs, I could always build my empire back up as long as, as I don't go to prison. Mm-hmm. So my main focus was keeping my guys out of prison because I know if they don't go to prison, then I don't go to prison uh, because there's nobody to tell on me. Right. And that pretty much, and that pretty much was 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 my uh, was my thoughts. So what the cops did is they got to the point since they couldn't find any drugs that they started going busting other people, and then they would bring their drugs and plant on us. Yeah, at that point, it sounds like there was there was no way around that. I mean, if they're planting dope, I mean, it's just your word versus them, and they're in the authority position. It's like nine times out of ten, you're going to lose, you know? Uh, no doubt. No doubt. So what I did, once they started doing that, though, uh, me and my attorney, we, we, we had a conversation about it, and I was telling him that, you know, because they they were causing me money on bails, bails and attorney fees and stuff. They were they were killing me on, on those two fronts. I mean, they were giving my guys bails that was ridiculous for the time. You know, back when 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 I was selling, you know, I've known guys to get caught with, you know, ten fifteen keys and and their bond might be fifty thousand. Well, they would plant a half a key on my guy and his bail would be three hundred thousand. So they they were giving them ridiculous bails, you know, going to judges, asking for favors, you know, just like all kind of stuff. So what I did is I decided to move out of state. And uh, uh, that's when I moved to, to Cincinnati, Ohio, and started and started my operation there. Okay. In the meantime, See, though, yeah. I, also hired, I also hired a private investigator to start investigating the cops. The only reason they got they got disbanded, and and also that's probably the reason why I'm not uh, spending the rest of my life in prison right now, because the evidence that they had against me uh, would have definitely put me away for for the rest of my life. Uh, no appeal could have I couldn't have won an appeal to anything, uh, but by them being corrupt, and the evidence that they had accumulated was all tainted, uh, allowed me. Uh, to be a free man today. Yeah, so how did that private investigator that you hired infiltrate the um the, the narcotic squad that was that was after you? Well, I mean, it was pretty simple what what he did. He he just started following them around, you know, when they go and do a raid, uh he's there watching, he's taking pictures. Uh um he would also go and interview the arrestees. Um, the neighbors, um, he just had a well-detailed uh, description of what he saw of these cops and how he felt about them. Yeah. And so when that finally came to head, like when it, when it all just kind of like blew up, what was the result of that? I guess there was like a 34-account indictment on them? Yeah, well, what, what happened first is that, that um, I, I eventually got indicted in, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, 
I didn't get arrested though. Uh, I got I ain't got in, I ain't got indicted in in L.A. and I ain't got indicted in in Texas and I think uh, Louisiana I believe it was. Uh, and I was pretty much on the run. Uh, but I stopped selling coke. Um, I was just doing real estate at the time. I hadn't been selling coke for about a year, and uh, I got arrested. You know, I was at one of my apartment buildings uh, pouring some concrete, and next thing you know, the cops come from everywhere shooting and, and everything. And I, I, luckily, I didn't get hit. Um, they arrested me. Uh, so when when they arrest me, they take me to jail. And uh, they sent me back to Cincinnati, Ohio, which was the first place to to face charges. Uh, while I was there, uh, I've been trying to to plead guilty in Cincinnati. You know, I was I was uh, when I saw how much time the feds were given for cocaine, uh, it scared me, and I wanted to get a ten year a ten year deal. Uh, so I started trying to get a ten year deal. I was trying to pay money, you know, saying. You know, let me give him five hundred thousand, uh, and give me ten years. My lawyer was saying, "I oh, don't work like that with the Fed." You know, explain that stuff to me. Uh, so they wouldn't make me a deal. So I'm fighting for about a year. You know, going back and forth to court. We preparing for trial, and then just one day, I'm sitting in my cell um, on the telephone, and the marshals come up, and they was like, uh, "Get ready, you got to go to court today." And I was like, I ain't got court today. You know, I ain't getting ready. So uh, they came back and they was like, didn't we tell you to get ready? You got court today. And I'm like, I ain't got court today, man. I ain't getting ready. I ain't, you know, I ain't going through all that stuff today. You know, strip searching and, you know, I, you know, it's always humiliating when 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 they take you outside because you got to get naked and have a man looking at you. So I didn't feel like going through it. But anyway, uh, I had to get ready, and I go to court. And then when I get to the building, I see my lawyer there. And I was like, because my lawyer was from L.A. And I was like, so Jerry, what what you doing here? What, what's going on here today? And he was like, I got an emergency call from the prosecutors that they wanted to talk to you. Um, and they want to make a deal. I was like, what? They want to make a deal? So I was like, they didn't want to make a deal last week. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened is um, my lawyer, we had all decided that we was going to turn all of the information over with the sheriffs uh, to to the federal uh, uh, prosecutor in Los Angeles and tell them, you know, your case ain't what you think it is. You know, your case is tainted. And it just so happened that the case in Cincinnati was also tainted, that the cops had been in Cincinnati helping, helping them out. Uh, they had also been to Texas helping Texas out. Uh, because later on what I find out is that you know, if somebody want to find out about Rick Ross and they're from a different state, who do you call? Well, you call the freeway task force and ask for assistance. <laughs> so all their cases was kind of tainted and, and uh, I was able to make some, some, some really, really good deals. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as a result of the, of the, one of the worst corruption scandals in law enforcement history, you had some extreme bargaining power. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of my friends there too. You know, I had I had friends that was already in prison that, that they had sent in prison. Uh, I think 150 people got out of prison once uh, once they indicted those cops. So in 1994, you were paroled and you returned to South Central. Circling back, you you mentioned uh, Danilo Blandone as as you know one of your your major plugs that you were kind of set with. 
getting some of the cheapest keys. You know, he ended up being a CIA informant. Can you talk about how everything played out with him in terms of, I guess, he he did a reverse sting on you? Yeah, yeah. Well, when I got out, uh, uh, after I made my deal with all all on all those cases that I was just telling you about, um, I, I wound up getting out in only five, like five and a half years, five years, eight months, something like that. Um, well, Danilo started calling me the day I got home, and me thinking that he was welcoming me home uh, 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 as a friend uh, who who did what he was supposed to do, who didn't tell on him. And I thought that Danilo was trying to do me a favor, you know, and help me get back on my feet. Uh, but in actuality, he was uh, wired. The phone call was recorded. Uh, everything was, was, was all set up. Well, eventually, I eventually introduced him to one of my little homies who had who had came up while I was gone and was doing pretty good for himself and uh, uh, made a deal for, for 100 kilos. Um, the hundred kilos was DEA drugs. Um, DEA had the whole place surrounded. And, you know, it was like uh, a mouse and the cheese. <laughs> Put the cheese out, and the mouse is gonna come. Uh, so we eventually got arrested for uh, for that case. Uh, but you know, while I was in prison, I, I didn't feel that I needed to to sell cocaine anymore. I felt that that I could make it without cocaine. Uh, and I had I had built me a plan, you know, um, and I was trying to uh, uh, really put that plan. It took six months uh, after I got out before I eventually fell into the trap. But I feel that by them keep putting it in my face and keep that crutch that 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 had become a crutch to me for so many years, you know, uh, uh, that that was there to fix my problems when I had problems for them to continuously put that in front of me. Uh, I, I felt it was unfair at the time, and I still feel that, that, that it's unfair uh, today that nobody should be uh, uh, induced with that kind of pressure uh, um, because I believe that dealers are addicts as well. I believe that, that we get addicted to to the selling of, of, of the narcotics. We get addicted to the money and, and so forth. Uh, so for them to know that somebody had just gotten out, had been so tied into the business the way that I was, was was unfair. But I know what happened. You know, they were mad that, that I took those cops down, uh, you know, because some cops felt that, that those cops weren't dirty. Um, I mean, even the jury did. You know, the jury didn't, didn't never find them guilty. They wound up making plea bargains because they got a hung jury. Uh and, and only if I think only five really did time uh, for some of the crimes that they did, and they did some some. If, if you get time, you go and look at their transcripts. They did some 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 atrocious stuff, you know, for us shocking people, you know, with uh, extension cards and uh, you know putting cards in in fish tanks and then sticking the people's hand in there, shocking them, I mean, putting plastic bags over people's heads, smothering them uh, to make them open safes, open safes. Uh, hitting people in the heads with flashlights. Uh, you know, they let the dog bite me while I was handcuffed and beat me in the head with flashlights and, and a skillet. So they they were pretty. They were they were probably more ruthless than than any drug dealer I ever seen. Damn. Could you talk about and explain to people? I mean, this was 
a major moment in U.S. history in terms of when the public found out about this, there was just it, it ramped up distrust with the U.S. government. Um, I guess Danilo was a, a CIA operative who was basically like helping the U.S. government by selling cocaine and then using the profits to fund a war in Nicaragua, right? Correct. Well, can you talk about the Iran Contra scandal? What what that was all about? Well, Iran the Iran Contra scandal it started. I don't know if people remember even before Ronald Reagan made president, um, they had the hostages over in 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 Iran uh, that they were able to trade weapons to get released. They traded those weapons and got money, and took the money and gave it to the Nicaraguan Contras. Eventually, they lost the war with Nicaragua. The country was lost to the Sandinistas, so the CIA operative and the American supporters from Nicaragua had to come to America to flee uh, prosecution. Well, when those guys got over here, those guys started selling drugs to raise money to continue the fight to uh, uh, to get their country back. Um, they used military supply planes, uh and things of that nature to bring drugs into the country um, until they, uh, to Congress uh, prove that they could uh, start back giving money. That's wild. It's crazy because it's, it's, it's like at the highest level, you know, the, the, the best plug you ever found was <laughs> – a guy that the CIA knew was moving metric tons of cocaine into the United States on their watch. No doubt. And not, not only that, but they had also went and got permission that they didn't have to report it from the attorney general because there was a law in place that says that if you and a government official and you know of somebody committing a drug crime, that you must report it. Otherwise, it's just like you committing the crime. Well, they went and got that law repealed where uh, they didn't have to do that. So years later, if you fast forward to today, you know, just a couple of years ago, Edward Snowden, um, you know, released the information about how the U.S. government was unlawfully spying on the American public on so many different levels. Does this does it feel similar in any way or? What do you think about that? It is very similar because basically what they got mad at him about is because he told the public that the government is doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. It's no different than than, than if, say, for instance, one guy would have came and said, hey, you know, our government is selling cocaine to the streets. You know, they're, they're the reason that all of our young black men out here selling cocaine right now because, they're the ones bringing it into the country. And then they turn around locking them up for for selling the cocaine that they brought over. I mean, it's really crazy. You know, one of my arguments uh, uh, to the judge was is that how can you be the government and bring the drugs in and then also be the government that locked me up for selling the drugs that you brought into the country? Um, the judges, you know, they, they overruled my, my argument, but... To me, it, it seems kind of crazy that, that, that this government is able to keep so many of our young black men in prison. You know, right now we have like 600,000 in there for nonviolent drug offenses, when at the end of the day that the government is the one who kicked this whole thing off. You know, who knows? 
maybe I would have started selling drugs if it wouldn't have been for, for our government making it so readily available. But then maybe I wouldn't have. Maybe I wouldn't have been able to find it. Maybe I would have just had this burning desire to sell drugs and never was able to find the guys who who who, uh, who had it. That's a good point, man. So, so the guy that that broke this story, the guy that the guy that found out about this um, the scandal, his the name Snowden. was Gary. That's Gary. like Snowden of the eighties, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I was thinking of, man. It's like Gary Webb in a lot of ways was very similar to Snowden. Um, how did you first meet Gary? Well, I called my lawyer one day, and, and, and we were discussing my case, and then he told me that it was this reporter who who um, who uh, had called him, asking if he could meet with me. Um, I, I, w- I wasn't afraid. My lawyer was more afraid for me to meet with him than I was uh, because I didn't feel that I had anything to lose. They had already told me they were going to give me a life sentence, and, and um, it didn't look like it was any way out for me uh, uh, of getting that life sentence. So I agreed to, that I wanted to meet with Gary, and uh, he he came down to the prison and saw me. And once and once the, the news broke, once he had released his story, it, it seems like there was, like, a lot of backlash even on him. Um, it seems like the media kind of demonized him in a lot of ways. And... Well, you- and the government put pressure on them, just like they did with Snowden. They did, they did. Well, you know, the first thing they tried to do was make it my story, you know, as if I'm the one who put all the evidence together and I accumulated all this stuff, but I knew absolutely nothing about this stuff when he when he broke the story. Uh, when Gary first came and seen me, uh, I had a life sentence without the possibility of parole. I mean, I didn't have my life sentence, but I, I was going to get a life sentence. And Gary told me that that I was going to be all right. He was like, no, you're going to be all right. There's no way that they're going to put this guy on the witness stand. He was like, this guy has too much baggage. And, you know, I was thinking, well, maybe this guy knew something about the sheriffs, you know, uh, or he, he could connect some some way tied to the sheriffs. You know, I had no idea that it was. Uh, 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 central intelligence that, that Gary Webb was talking about that he had too much baggage about, but Gary was was Gary was almost positive that this guy wouldn't wouldn't testify. I mean, uh, uh, when this guy testified, Gary was totally blown away. You know, uh, he was like, "Man, I can't believe that they put this guy on the witness stand." And uh, you know, doing trial. My lawyer didn't know this information, so Gary was sitting in the front row right behind our seat, and he was kind of like feeding. Gary had became, remember, remember I told you about the investigator for the uh, for the sheriff? Yeah. Well, Gary, Gary had become the investigator for the CIA for us, but he wasn't giving us the information readily. He he gave us the information like he wanted to. You know, he he, he fed my lawyer bits and pieces during the trial. Okay. Because so Gary never got to question Danilo Blandon. So what he did is he questioned Danilo Blandon through my lawyer. You know, when when Danilo was supposed to show up for before trial, you you, you have what they call an interview with the, with the informant, and 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 what happens is the informant's supposed to come to this room. Um, I couldn't be there, but my lawyer could be there, and my lawyer would get to talk to him, you know, ask him questions and stuff. 
Well, Danilo, he when he showed up to that meeting, he refused to talk to my lawyer. They can refuse to talk, too. They can say, you know, everything I got to say, I'm going to say at trial. Uh, it's crazy how the feds work, you know. Uh, it's supposed to be where you get to talk to this guy to see what part he's telling the truth about and what part he's lying about. But uh, they can they can they can say that they don't want to talk. So he never talked to anybody. So in order for Gary to to get to question this guy and get the answers that he wanted, he had to do it while the guy was on the witness stand. And uh, Gary was uh, Gary and my lawyer was communicating so much uh, during the trial that the judge uh, stopped the trial and was like. Why are you and this reporter trading notes and 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 um, talking so much doing you know doing your questioning and and my lawyer had to tell her that uh, that the government had really what they call sandbagged us, meaning that they didn't give us information that that Gary already had and and that the, the government already knew about. And we thought we thought that I was going to get my whole case dismissed behind that. I should have won my whole case. Uh, uh, um, um, uh, Brady versus Maryland, but they didn't. Uh, they didn't. They didn't stick with the law on, on those issues. Uh, but that's how Gary Webb got to question uh, Danilo Blandon. So they kind of suppressed the information, and it sounds like they kind of pretty much halfway denied it for the most part. Um, I guess in in 1998, the CIA officially acknowledged in like a 400-page document that they were associated with people in the Contra movement engaged in drug trafficking. And uh, it sounds like Gary was pretty much a martyr. Yeah, yeah. But he'd already been blackballed where he couldn't get a job. They they had really ruined his life. Years later, uh, I had heard that in 2004... This was when I was like a teenager. Um, he committed suicide, but I read about it, and it was so weird. They said that his death was ruled as a suicide, but he was shot twice in the head. And I don't see any way that would be even be possible. Why isn't that a bigger story? I don't get it. Well, you know, so many people want the story just to go away. Uh, um it's it's cleaner, you know, for it just to go away. And you know, Gary said something in his last interview. Uh, I don't know if you saw it, but we 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 got his last interview on my documentary, uh, Freeway Crack in the System, and and he says that the government has admitted that they were involved in trafficking cocaine, and the public don't know about it. So that shows that there's such bad news coverage, you know, it's not about news anymore. It's just about what the powers that be want want the people to know. It's fucking mind boggling. <laughs> it's it's so much to take in and it's uh it's terrifying as well. Once you were sentenced uh how many years did you do? Uh I did two bits. Uh, uh, a total of a total of twenty years, about three or four months, something like that. Okay. And once you got out, man, um, you know how how is this? I mean, you, you talked in the very beginning how the whole cocaine game has kind of like basically affected your life even up till now. It's still 
affecting it in so many different ways. How has this experience changed you as a person? How do you think you're different? Well, you know, I, I, I educated myself while I was gone. Uh, you know, when I went to prison, I couldn't read or write. So so I taught myself to read or write while I was in prison. I read over 300 books while I was gone. And I I found out that, you know, you have to look at the brighter side of things. You can't always focus on the negative, what you don't have. And that's what so many people do. They focus on what they don't instead of what they can. And I try to focus myself on what I can do and what I have going on and not just on what I don't. So education and being appreciative of what, what you got. No doubt. For all the all all the kids out there, like what would your message be to like a lot of youth? I mean, poverty is at an all time high. I mean a lot of a lot of kids growing up, like they feel like I mean they can't get jobs. The jobs that they can get aren't paying enough. They aren't even paying a living wage and, and a lot of people kinda are pushed into the dope game and they feel like that's their only way out. Like, what would you say to them? What, well, what would you, be their you know, alternative? I and I understand why, you know, the dope game has no ceiling. You know, there's nobody to say, you know, you're black, you're Mexican, uh, you're poor, that you can't get in. You know, the only thing you have to do is come up with a small amount of cash and, and you can buy your way into the game. Uh, but what I learned is that those same skills that we use in the drug business can be used and harnessed into anything that that we do. I took my drug skills, and, and that's another reason that I'm out, because I started studying the law, and I eventually found the issue that, that, that got me out today. Um, and I use those same skills now uh, uh, in everything that I do. And if our young people take those skills that they learn on the streets, and learn how to make those skills work for them in 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 everyday life. I mean, they can't be beat. You figure, you figure our young men out here that are selling drugs. They know that they're taking a chance on going to prison. If they put those same type of skills to use on anything else, they can't lose because most people. If if Bill Gates was doing something, if, if they told Bill Gates tomorrow that. If he didn't shut Microsoft down, he was going to go to prison. He would shut it down. I mean, he would fight first with his money to 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 do everything that he could to keep it open. But if at the end of the day, if Congress or whoever made it illegal to sell uh, windows, uh, he would stop. Uh, but our young black guys on the street, they won't. They're going to keep going. That's a form of determination and dedication that that's the second to none. I mean, they've been willing to put their life on the line. You know, when when I sit back in prison and and, and I remember when I used to get up in the morning and put my pistol in my in my in my in my waistband, um uh, and I did that with the knowledge and intention that, that day I might have to kill somebody or that day I could get killed. But I was gonna continue my drug business, even at that cost. What What do you think are like a few business rules that that pe- that normal everyday people can live by that you've kind of learned? Because in a lot of ways, I mean, what you've described in terms of running 
you know, from going for one gram to millions of dollars, a lot of these, a lot of these skills, they parallel legitimate businesses, you know, normal everyday corporations, like, you know, expanding your network, research and development. What are just like a few, a few skills that people can apply to their lives every day to be, you know, I can tell you a couple right now, really quick, and, and that everybody could use and, and could really change their life immediately, like today. Uh, save your money. Don't spend your money. Uh, save as much as you can and, and live off as least as you can. Uh, the other one would be to make make work your best friend. You know, Enjoy your work. I, I really enjoyed selling cocaine. Uh, uh, and, and I thought it was because of the cocaine, but it wasn't the cocaine that I enjoyed. I enjoyed the network with people. I, I enjoyed the, 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 the haggling, the, the, the wrestling. Because business is almost like playing a sport. It's almost like basketball. But the difference is that your, 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 your score is how much money you accumulate. Well, man, I, I really appreciate you um, chatting with me this morning. What you got going on the rest no of the day? Doubt. What are you doing? Uh, I'll be in North Carolina today. I'll be speaking there tomorrow, I think. Um, and just, you know, going along with, with my everyday activities, you know, trying to develop my T-shirt, uh, my, 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 my counseling business, just, just staying busy, you know, networking, networking and development. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know you got a lot going on, man. It seems like, you know, your book has been doing well for a while. and um, I'm sold out right now. I got I to gotta go on my third print. Oh, wow. Congrats, man. All right, yeah. man. Well, I'll let you go. You have a good rest of the day, man. Thank you. All right, brother. See you.